pray for us as we begin. Our Father, we delight to be your people this morning, to gather before your word, to hear your voice and to be trained by it. And so we pray that you would do that right now, that you would speak through my fumbling words, that we would hear your voice and that you would shape our hearts. Praise you that your word never returns to you empty, but always accomplishes that which you have intended. Please have your way in us this morning. For your glory's sake. Amen. Imagine the scenario, if you will, over a period of time, one or two of our elders here begin to teach a false gospel. It's a subtle change that happens over a period of time. Uh, In this scenario, they're not exactly stating that Jesus is not enough anymore. They're just not speaking about him very much. They're talking about other things. Ever so subtle. Slight changes, and others in the church begin to listen to them, and they, and they drift away from Christ. Now, I want to stress at this point, this is only a scenario. It's not something that I think is really going on in the church. But it might be a good thing, as some of the elders come up to talk to us at the AGM in a, in a few minutes' time, to ask the question, what are their priorities for us as a church? Are they in line with what Paul is saying here? Back to our scenario, what would Paul do with such elders? What ought Timothy to do? That is the situation in verse 20, isn't it? Where uh, Paul uh, tells Timothy, you're facing this issue of Hymenaeus and Alexander. No doubt these are senior men in the church. They're teachers, or at least taking on some teaching roles for themselves. Certainly they're known to Timothy, and would be known to the church that are overhearing this letter. And Paul is very clear, isn't he? They are men whom I have handed over to Satan. Paul wants them out of the church, out from under God's protection and away from any influence they might have on the church. Clearly, Paul thinks that these false teachers are bad news. And he would stir uh, Timothy up and would stir us up to be just as concerned about false teaching too. And we are still talking about the false teachers. Notice, would you, verse 18. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command to which we want to respond. Which command, Paul? And the answer is back there in verse 3 where we were last week. Stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. So this whole chapter is a, a unity. It's an introduction to this letter in which Paul commands Timothy to deal with the false teachers in Ephesus, who, we'll remember, have rejected real Christian conversion and are committed to seeking godliness by misteaching the Old Testament instead. You'll remember as well, if you were here last week, that we encountered uh, the big theme of the letter in verse 4, which Paul is going to pick up again next week in 2 verse 1. Verse 4, such things, that is the the false teachings and the false beliefs of the false teachers, promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Last Christmas, we gave our boys a Lego Millennium Falcon. It's quite big. You come and have a look at it. Imagine trying to build something that uh, complex without the instructions. You've got all the parts, they've packed them all in the factory, nothing uh, unnecessary in the packet, but you've got thousands of pieces. How do you put them all together and get the the right 
uh, ship after, at the end of it? Well, human society is uh, much more complex than the Millennium Falcon. But because of sin, we have refused the Maker's instructions. We try to build a society based on our own rational minds and following our feelings and our corrupted loves. And I don't think I'm, I'm speaking out of turn to say, if you look around our world, it is a beautiful world that's been terribly broken by the things that we as humanity have done to it. But God has a plan to remake humanity according to those original instructions. That's God's work. That's what he's about. That's the thing that's going to unite the whole of, of these six chapters together. And these false teachers are opposed to it. And they're, uh, they're taking people away from real Christianity, which promotes God's purposes. That's the theme of the letter. Real Christianity produces God's society through the gospel. And in verse 11, you'll remember, uh, Paul uh, speaks of the gospel which God has entrusted to him. As, as the apostle to the Gentiles, he's, he's preaching the gospel to all people to draw them into God's community. And he moves seamlessly, I think, from verse 11, at his calling, to verse 12, where he gives thanks for his calling. Notice, I thank Christ Jesus my Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Our passage this morning, then, begins in verse 12, and, and comes in two parts. Uh, it's broken conveniently by the, uh, the people who translated the Bible for us. Verse 12, uh, Paul's commission and his thanksgiving. And then verse 18, Timothy's commission. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command. That's the structure. And I take it understanding how the two sections are related to each other will help us to understand what on earth Paul is doing in verse 20 with Hymenaeus and Alexander. So let's turn to uh, verse 12 to 17. It's a section that begins with thanksgiving and ends with praise. And we'll come to those two bits in a moment. Uh, but in verses 13 to 16, Paul gives us a very personal account of the power of Christian conversion. Uh, Paul is taking his own story and, and locating it in the grand plan of God uh, to build a new community uh, in which Paul is sent to the Gentiles to preach the gospel. And this retelling that Paul gives it has a very clear centre, doesn't it? Verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. It's a phrase that Paul uses in this form or a shortened form in 3 verse 1 and 4 verse 9 and again in 2 Timothy and Titus. It's Paul's way of saying to Timothy, I'm drawing your attention to something really important here. Not only a central claim within my own story, but a central claim of Christianity. Uh, pay attention to this point, he says. And here it is. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. There's two things there. First, there is the gospel story. Christ came into the world to save sinners. And then there is Paul's own story, of which I am the worst. And he's using his story to illustrate the power of the gospel. Now, Bible words have Bible meanings, and so we need to ask the question, what does Paul mean by the word sinners here? That's the linking point between God's story and Paul's story. What, is, what does that word mean? See, if we use that word at all in our culture today, we use it to mean something like a person who's kind of fun but a bit naughty, don't we? You know, you have the, the saintly, uptight, goody-two-shoes type of person 
But sinners, they have a good time. They're a little bit naughty. They're free spirits. Saints aren't perfect, of course. But sinners aren't really that bad either. But if that were right, what would it mean that Jesus has come to save sinners? If that was a right reading of the word sinners, what would that mean? Well, I guess it would mean that Jesus didn't come to save the saints. They get in on their own merits. They're in, in with God for being, because they're good people. And sinners, well, they're not that bad. They're just a little bit naughty. And so Jesus just takes that and sort of rubs out some of the naughtiness and makes them fit for God's presence. Do you see? If that's how we think, and I guess we've all thought it from time to time, that's, well, that's medieval Roman Catholicism for you. And I guess it's, it's quite similar to legalistic Judaism. It's quite similar to Islam as well. In fact, such a large proportion of the world's population thinks like this. But I guess many of us here would have been raised to think similarly. Perhaps even we default, even today, to thinking a little bit like this. So let me show you the two opposing errors that we could fall into here. This is the way we think of sinners. On the one hand, you have a good day. You do all the right religious things, you have your quiet time, you, you say your prayers, you're kind to people. Basically, you're doing it all well. And you begin to think, oh, I'm so good. I can do this without God. And you fall into the religious bucket over here. The people who are trusting in themselves and not in Jesus. Okay. On the other hand, you might have another day where you're deeply self-aware and you're very aware that you are a sinner. Really sinful. Really bad. Maybe it's a glass half empty day. And so you think, I'm so bad, there's nothing Jesus can do for me. And you fall into the bucket of people who think they're so far beyond Jesus' help that you stop trusting in Jesus as well. You see? That pride or despair, in either case, takes us away from Jesus. And neither of those is real Christianity. Because, says Paul, I am the worst of sinners, and Jesus saved me. Now that is a bold claim, isn't it? Of all the people in all the world, Paul is the worst of sinners. So, so Paul helps us to understand what he means by this in verse 13. Here Paul gives his mature assessment on his former life, after years of reflecting on his motives and his actions, and he says this, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Now let's be clear what Paul is alluding to here. Paul says he was a blasphemer. That is, he made claims about God, he believed things about God that are untrue. Blasphemy was punishable in the Old Testament by stoning people to death, which is how the first Christian martyr Stephen died, if you read Acts chapter 7. Stoned to death because he made claims about Jesus that are true and were hated. And who was there? Paul was there, giving approval to his death. See, Paul was a law-keeping, Torah-loving Pharisee. And he thought that by keeping the law, he could be in God's good books. And all the time he was declaring that Jesus was not Lord. And so he was committing the worst of blasphemies. Blasphemy which led him to persecution of the church. I've just mentioned the martyring of Stephen, but, but Paul didn't stop there. And when Paul was converted, he was on the way to Syria, to Damascus, 
to arrest other Christians, to bring them back to the Jewish ruling council, and I guess to have them imprisoned or martyred. Paul was deeply zealous to persecute the church, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 9. Paul hated Jesus, and he persecuted the church. And all of that flowed out of, what does he say? A violent heart. He was a violent man. Of course, outwardly, Paul was a law-keeping Pharisee. But internally, he was driven by hatred and pride and anger towards violence. Of course, violence that found, found a, a, a godly outlet because he persecuted the heretics, the Christians. Paul was a despicable man. Maybe we would think of other sins as more wicked, but in God's economy, hating Jesus and persecuting the church are about as bad as it gets. And his sin was very great. And he despised the Saviour. And he loathed God's people. And he says, that lumps me into the category of the worst of sinners. Now, it may be there are others in human history who have committed a greater number of grievous sins than Paul did. But there is nobody who has committed worse sins than Paul did. So why did Jesus save Paul? Well, there are two things we're told. Yes, verse 13b. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Paul said, I didn't understand the gospel. I didn't get Jesus. That's why I did what I did. And, And so God has mercy on him because he was ignorant. But really, the purpose is there for us in verse 16. For that very reason I was shown mercy... So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his immense patience as an example to those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Do you see, Jesus was even prepared to be patient with Paul, who loathed him and tried to kill his church. And so he's able to be patient with anybody. He's able to be patient with you. If he can do it for Paul, who was there at the bottom of the barrel of the worst of sinners, and he can bring him out of that, then there is hope. There is the power for salvation in Jesus for anybody. Nobody is beyond that. Nobody is beyond the power of Christ. And Paul proves it. Just be honest with yourself for a moment. Are there things in your past, things in your present perhaps, which you think pollute you so much that you, you're beyond the scope of Jesus. Even if you've been a Christian for a long time, sometimes we fall into that bucket, don't we, of thinking that we're beyond help. And we remove our trust from Christ. If that is you, then please realise that Jesus came to save sinners. He came to save the worst of sinners, as an example to show that he could save any sinners. Of course, that begs the question then, doesn't it? What is this salvation, this this turning around point in Paul's life? The the point that brings God's great plan and Paul's life into this perfect alignment. Notice in this passage uh, here, verses 12 to 17, the focus is squarely on Christ Jesus, whom Paul says came into the world to save sinners. That's a reference to his incarnation. It's a reference to God who became man in human history for a purpose. Paul draws attention to the intention of Christ. He came to earth to save sinners. Save from what? You might be saying. What what does that mean? Well, saving sinners points to the fact that we sin. We have a sin problem. Which is to say, 
He came to save us from God's judgment against our sin. The centre of Paul's gospel is the central work of Christ. Jesus Christ took on himself the guilt of all his people. All his people being, verse 16, those who would believe in him. If we trust in Jesus, we believe in him. If we believe that he came to die for us, then he is our saviour. And he took all our sin, all of the things that we think put us at the bottom of that barrel, and indeed the pride that we think puts us in this one over here. He took all of that on himself and bore God's anger as he died on the cross for everything that we've done. It was my sin that held him there, the hymn says. That's right. He died so that we don't have to. The death that we should die, the death we deserve to die, the death that Paul deserved to die for his outrageous sins, Jesus died in his place. And if Paul, the worst of sinners, can receive this salvation, then Jesus can save any one of us too. But how? How did that salvation come to Paul? What is the point at which Paul was brought to experience this salvation? Verse 14. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Grace is God's undeserved goodness uh, that is poured out in an overflowing way, this uh, superabundance. Imagine the, the ice bucket challenge. You know the this thing where people fill a bucket full of ice and tip it on themselves to show how hard they are or something. I don't really understand where it comes from. But that, that's the image here, isn't it, of Paul being, being drenched with God's goodness, his overflowing abundance of, of mercy and love to him. And it is a, a grace that uh, relates to Paul's powerful conversion. This is what it's about. Grace comes with the gift of faith and love. Faith, that, that central idea to all Christianity, how we become Christians, we put our trust in Jesus, we put our faith in Jesus, and love the supreme ethic of Christianity, how we're to live in Christ. Gifts of God, gifts from Jesus Christ to Paul to save him. Paul had lived in ignorance and unbelief, now he believes in Jesus. Paul trusted in his own goodness. Uh, sought to live by the law and persecuted the church, but now he has the gift of love. Uh, just consider what an extraordinary change happened in Paul's life because of Jesus. Paul was a blasphemer who hated Jesus. Now he not only believes in Jesus, but preaches the gospel of Jesus. He, he wants everybody to believe in Jesus. What a turnaround. Uh, Paul uh, once persecuted the church in his violent rage. Now he not only loves the church, but is willing to be persecuted himself to very great degrees for her. And indeed Paul would be martyred for Christ. Paul, who was full of ungodliness when he was a legalistic Pharisee, has been turned around, not by his own efforts, not by law-keeping, but by the grace of Jesus Christ through the gospel. But why has Paul recorded this for us here? What is his point? Paul wants us to keep the mission of Jesus front and centre. Jesus came to save sinners. I think we're all guilty. And now he's commissioned Paul and Timothy to preach the gospel to save sinners. Their missions go together with God's plan, don't they? 
Jesus came to save sinners. Paul's preaching for sinners. Timothy is sent to preach to save sinners. And so to validate this ministry that Paul has given, he shows the power of real Christian conversion in his own life to turn around. He reminds us that salvation is open to the very worst of sinners. The people you think are far, far beyond Jesus Christ right now. The people you work with, the people in your family who you just think you despair of them. Not beyond the power of Jesus Christ. And he talks about the radical change that is brought about in his own life. In his loves and passions and commitments. That could never be achieved by following laws. He wants Timothy and the Ephesian church to stick with the Jesus programme because it works. And so, verses 12 and 17, praise Christ. And it might seem, it might be that there are some here today who have never put their trust in Jesus. You've never accepted Jesus as Saviour and Lord. Perhaps you've, you've felt that you, you're not bad enough to need Jesus or perhaps you're too bad to need Jesus. In either case, Swallow your pride. Recognise that Paul was worse than you and come to put your trust in Jesus. Be one of his people that he died for. Let him pour out his abundant grace on you. Why are you putting it off? Put your trust in him. Let him save you. Why would you turn away from one who is so good? Of course, many of us have been Christians for a long time here. And I wonder, when we look back to our own conversion, do we have the same sort of experience that Paul does? Do we see the radical change in us? And do we praise God the way Paul does here in verse 17? I haven't got time to dwell at length on these verses. Let me make a couple of uh, comments that you can then dwell on as you, as you think about uh, what you see here in verse 17. Notice the attributes of God here are hidden. The eternal, immortal, invisible God a God who is totally different to us, a God who is totally able to save through Jesus Christ, but one that we can't see by just walking down the street. And secondly, notice that Paul, although he is committed totally to Jesus, he hasn't forgotten his Jewish roots. He's not abandoned the Old Testament. That phrase there, the only God, is lifted straight out of the most precious verse of the Old Testament for a Jewish person. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. It's lifted straight out of there in the original languages. Paul is saying, I still believe all the things I used to believe about God. But now I understand them all through the Lord Jesus. And so here's Paul's point. The hidden Lord of the Old Testament has been wonderfully revealed as the saving Lord, Jesus Christ, in the New Testament. What a privilege that Paul has to be so transformed that he's called into this service. This ministry by this mighty God who has changed him and turned him around and given him a gospel to share that saves other people. What a privilege. That's why Paul's so thankful in verse 12. It's why he's so determined to preach Christ alone for everybody because it's Christ only who saves. And that is why Paul is so troubled by the false teaching in Ephesus because they are taking people away from Christ to hell. And it is why he returns to the question of what Jesus is still doing in Ephesus there, in verses 18 to 20, where Timothy must seek the salvation of all. 
Paul returns to the chain of command, doesn't he? We said that it's verse 3, uh, Paul has commanded Timothy. Now, now, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command. But he backs up the commission here. He goes further than he does in verse 3. Notice, in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, verse 18. Now, we don't know when this happened. Perhaps it was when, when Timothy first joined Paul's team, maybe 20 years earlier. Perhaps it was just as he left, him, uh, left Paul to go to Ephesus. But it appears that Jesus himself has commissioned Timothy through some elders who've prophesied over him, who've commissioned him by God's grace to this very particular ministry to take the gospel of Jesus and to see people saved by it. And Timothy has a God-given responsibility to this gospel. And he has a God-given motivation, doesn't he? Because the invisible, immortal, eternal God has called him to this task and he's able to make the thing work. Paul wants Timothy to remember his commission so that by recalling the prophecies, by recalling them, verse 18, you may fight the battle well. That phrase, fight the battle, you might know in a previous translation is fight the good fight. It's exactly the same phrase as Paul uses of his own ministry in 2 Timothy 4, 7. Right at the end of his, his communications with Timothy, as he comes to the end of his life, he says, I fought the good fight, I have kept the faith. That's what he means. He doesn't mean uh, staying, just staying a Christian. That's not what he means. He means more than that. It means defending the gospel, protecting it, purifying the church from error and declaring the truth. How do you, how do you keep the gospel? You give it away. How do you keep the gospel pure? You give it away. You refute error. You replace it with the truth. You give people the gospel and you help them to understand it so that everybody believes the truth. That's how you keep the truth. You make sure everyone believes it. And so that's what Paul committed his life to. That's what he's telling Timothy to do here. Fight the battle. Remember why you're there and fight the battle. Remember to preach the gospel, Timothy. Timothy is here to fight for the same gospel as Paul. And he'll do it by remembering who has called him, Jesus Christ, the infinite God. And he'll do it, verse 19, by holding on to faith and a good conscience. What he believes and what he does. Remember back to last week's passage. These are the staples of Christianity. Verse 5, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. These are the basics of being a Christian. Timothy, keep hold of your faith in Jesus. Keep your conscience clear as you live according to the, the gospel of Jesus. And preach Christ. Defend the gospel, drive out error. Yet Paul says there are some in Ephesus who have rejected this Christian conversion. They've, they've abandoned Christ and his gospel and the power of the gospel to change people and gone in for legalism instead, for, for trusting in rules to change them. He said it in verse 6. He says it again here, halfway through verse 19. Some have rejected which some, which some have rejected, which is referring back to, uh, to faith and a good conscience. Some people have rejected the basics of real Christianity. And so we're in a much better place, aren't we, than we were when we began today to understand what is Paul doing with Hymenaeus and Alexander. The gospel is about Jesus and what he has done. Through the gospel, Paul, as an example to every Christian, 
is powerfully converted by the abundant grace that Christ pours out on him, which produces faith and ultimately love. But the false teachers have rejected these things, and so, verse 19, they have made a shipwreck of, in regards to the faith. <laughs> now, when you think about shipwrecks here, don't think the Costa Concordia. Do you remember the Costa Concordia three years ago, four years ago, I think? You know, massive cruise liner that sort of tipped over. And most of the people were fine. There were a few deaths, but 4,000 people got off the boat safely. That's not what Paul has in mind here. He's thinking big wooden boats that are marooned on the rocks and smashed by relentless waves until there is nothing left of them. And he says, that is what this false teaching does to the teachers and to those who hear it. It shipwrecks their faith. It destroys their faith in Jesus because they put their trust in other things, in their own self-righteousness. It's a total loss of life. (coughs) Rather than following the pole star, you know, navigating according to the gospel they're looking around at everything else looking around at at speculations and and vain fantasies and they've completely forgotten Jesus and they've wandered off into wrong tracks they've they've not looked at their map they've not followed the instructions and and they're destroying not only their own faith but those in the church as well it is a total disaster and so Paul takes drastic action against these men uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who are, I take it, elders or certainly senior men within the church who are speaking as authoritative teachers and they're teaching the law and they're not teaching Christ and they're, they're drawing people in the church away to shipwreck their whole faith. And Paul says, no, these men I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Just notice that last word in, in the sentence there. Blaspheme. Which we've heard already, haven't we? in our passage today. Because Paul is equating their false teaching with his own pharisaical use of the Torah when he was not yet a Christian. He's saying they're doing the same thing that I used to do. Both of them were trying to obey laws in order to be godly, to be right with God. Both of them are defaming Jesus one way or another, and both of them would have destroyed the church. Paul explicitly, these false teachers implicitly. If Paul, who acted in ignorance and unbelief, was the worst of sinners, then what is Paul saying here? And what are we to make of teachers who work in the church, who have been part of the church for a long time, and who begin to teach against Jesus and undermine the work that God is doing? What are we to say of them? Are they not with Paul as the worst of sinners? Paul says they are dangerous and they are damnable. And so he says to hand, he sent, hands them over to Satan. Which I take it uh, means uh, this is sort of the end of Paul's process of church discipline. And he does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. It seems to draw uh, from uh, the way that Job is handed over into, into the devil's hands in Job 2.6. That's the language. Okay. It's like God's protection is removed from them. He's saying they're out of the church. Uh, the spirit of God, the, the power of God that is protecting the church, I've removed that from these men. They're not part of the church anymore. I've kicked them out of the congregation. They do not belong anymore. But notice, would you, Paul wants them to repent because he believes that the worst of sinners can be saved. 
And so he says, I've handed them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. They're blasphemers now, but I want them not to be. I want them to learn to put their trust in Christ again. Bring them back. I want to restore them. And so I'm doing this very stern discipline to wake them up, to shake them up, to show them they don't belong. I want them to learn to love Jesus because even the worst of false teachers can be saved. Before we close then, uh, let's sum up what we've seen. First of all, let's be very, very clear about false teaching that denies the power of Christ to save and to change his people. A false teaching might even distract us from Jesus by teaching the Bible. Uh, such teaching is damnable. You can use the Bible to destroy people. Such teachings must be removed from the church. And such teachers must be disciplined, even removed themselves. Our priority as a church, like Paul's, must be eternal salvation through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel alone. That is why Jesus came. That is what we must be about. And therefore, secondly, let us personally keep our focus on Jesus alone. And don't be distracted. Don't listen to people who would distract you. Don't read people who would distract you. And don't be distracted. Because the saving work of Christ and the power of salvation comes from Christ alone. Don't be distracted in any other way. And so finally, let us take our teaching responsibilities very, very seriously. Whether you're an elder with responsibility for what we all believe, a small group leader, a Sunday school teacher, a parent, or whether it's just that you speak the truth in love as you have conversations with others. We must speak the truth and not a lie. We can build up or we can destroy one another. We can take the church apart. We must take that seriously. And as as elders, we will take it seriously. It's our responsibility as much as it's anybody's. To make sure that doesn't happen. Why don't we pray? Our loving Lord Jesus, how we delight that you have come to save sinners. And if you can save Paul, you can save any one of us here. And we delight in that and we praise you for the power of real Christian conversion that turns us around. That changes our loves and our passions and our hearts. And enables us to live a life of love for others. We pray for that more and more within our community. And please give us uh, open eyes to see where we might be believing and teaching wrong things. Give each one of us a diligence to know you better. To know your scriptures better. To know the truth better. So that we might love Jesus more. And speak his truth. Help us to guard the gospel by giving it away. That others might hear the truth. And be saved by this wonderful Jesus who pours out his grace so abundantly. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.